it's Paul here. Uh, welcome back to Rupture Radio. I'm joined this week by Rupture regular Nicole. Hello. Hi, Nicole. And also for his first time on the podcast, but he's like a regular in the in the backroom magic, which makes the podcast happen. We have Michael. Hey, how's it going? Uh, hello, Michael. Uh, later on, we'll be joined by Kian, one of our producers for a special bonus B-side we're recording just for the podcast Patreon community. So if you'd like to hear that and support the podcast, please do head on over to patreon.com forward slash rupture radio and sign up. So, I mean, a lot of weeks in the last months have been news packed, but I think the last week probably um, is really up there. We have a lot to cover, including the Leo the Leak scandal, the vote of no confidence, which is coming. Well, the debate is coming on Tuesday. Um, I think the vote will be on Wednesday. But first of all, we have to talk about the US elections. Uh, Nicole, could you bring us up to speed on where things stand? Yeah. So basically, it was announced yesterday, I believe, to the joy of millions all over the world that uh, Trump is no longer the president of the United States of America, although him and his supporters don't seem to accept this in the same way. And so looking it up just before this, so I hope the figures are still accurate. Um, They need 270 electoral college votes in order to make the presidency. And Biden was on 290 last time I checked versus Donald Trump's 214. So although it is a victory for Biden, it's not exactly a landslide in any way. And there was still, you know, a few touch and go moments in there in the counts where we were like, is Trump going to get another four years, you know? Has he moved out of the White House yet, Michael? Uh, no, he doesn't. He doesn't appear to be. Um, he's just, um, he, he hasn't tweeted in like over 12 hours, which is obviously incredible for him. Um, but yeah, like I, I do think it, it is kind of important to stress just how close this actually was in the sense that, like, obviously, the, you know, if we'd gone by the popular vote, Biden would have won by a lot. But like, if you look at the most important states, so like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Georgia, in all of those states, the Libertarian Party got more votes than Biden's margin over Trump. And you would have to assume, right, that those people would lean more towards Trump. Um, so, yeah, it, it is like we were very, very close to, 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 to Trump remaining, which is um, given everything that, that, that's happened in the last year, especially um, that is unthinkable, really. But here we are. I mean, and even on the popular vote, I mean, Biden will end up with 75 million votes and Trump will have about 70 million uh, votes. So Trump, Trump I, I had a tweet yesterday. Obviously, the tweets have been hilarious. Um, just seeing that, like, the actual breakdown of this monstrous figure behaving like a baby on Twitter. But he, he was saying, and it is accurate, that he's like, he's got the largest amount of votes ever for a sitting president. Mm-hmm. But of course, he's not mentioning the fact that Biden got another 5 million more. But I mean... That's all a reflection of, so Biden has the most votes ever, but that's because you have this deep polarization in US society and you have the highest turnout in like over 100 years as a as a percentage and because both sides mobilized. Um, but like you're saying, you know, the fact that after being responsible for a quarter of a million deaths in the US in terms of coronavirus for the, you know, I mean, you look at the horrendous pictures of like children in cages. Um, the fact that the mainstream media, largely, with the exception of Fox, um, was quite kind of blatantly 
pro-Biden and wasn't like really promoting stories which would damage Biden, like around the Hunter Biden stuff. Um, it is, it's a, you know, it's a real reflection of the weakness of that kind of right-wing Biden corporate Democrat stuff. You just have to ask yourself the question, what was it that actually pushed Biden over the line? You know, what what did get him the extra five million popular votes and the extra few um, college electoral um, wins? Um, and I suppose a big part of that was people organizing outside of the Democratic Party in, in kind of left wing spheres, because obviously the realization that you need to get Donald Trump out you know, as opposed to actually supporting Biden, I suppose. Um, and I would have been watching Sky News, um, the beacon of all <laughs> important information, but they were interviewing people uh, after the election kind of around the states and just to get an idea of, you know, the views on both sides and stuff like that. And the people they were interviewing in terms of Biden supporters seemed actually to be quite grassroots. Um, a few of them in Georgia in particular, I think that's a state that used to be Republican and now it's, it's turned Democrat from what I am aware. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of them were like wearing jumpers, which were like every vote counts, which to me would be campaigning against the electoral college to try and have it as a more even system. So even to have people out campaigning for Biden that are like not necessarily Democrats, definitely helped. One of them in particular was talking about how hundreds of people who'd lost their jobs due to COVID had actually been bussed into Georgia to help to canvass and campaign. And obviously it seems for American people, a big part of, you know, what made their decision in the election is how Trump handled COVID. So I think that that definitely was like a pushing over the line as well. And it is worth stating as well that like, the actual kind of strategy of the Biden campaign um, was to peel off moderate mm -hmm. Republicans, and that did mm -hmm. not work, right? Um, Trump got 93% of moderate Republicans this time compared to 90% in 2016. Um, and then I think you have to look at that and, and look at like the, the Lincoln project, which was this um, yeah. campaign by like, again, moderate, quote unquote, moderate Republicans, who in reality are just kind of like, leftovers from the George W. Bush White House, who were like the biggest cheerleaders of the war in Iraq. Um, but they raised like loads and loads of money um, to and obviously just like wasted it all away. Like you have to you have to admire the grift in some ways, like po possibly the greatest grift of all time in American electoral politics, because again, once again, that that, that strategy was useless. And as as Nicole said, what actually pulled Biden over the line was um, organizing by grassroots organizations in big the big cities in the key states, um, and a lot of that was kind of built on the the architecture of of, of the Black Lives Matter movement um, as well. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of it's 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 a weird one because obviously Biden still won, but um, as we've said, like not really for the reasons that he was trying to win. I I, I feel. I mean, I think. Um... People don't like to hear it, or some people don't like to hear it. You can see on Twitter kind of an alliance between liberals and socialists breaking down because everyone, you know what I mean, was watching Trump's meltdown, was delighted to see Trump lose. But a lot of people at this stage kind of don't want to hear the reality of what Biden is. I mean, Biden's a very right wing uh, Democrat. I was saying on Twitter, I've, I have a book that's uh, next on my reading list. Um, which is a book called Yesterday's Man, which is from a, a left-wing perspective talking about how awful Biden is. But just like 
a very quick like highlight reel of Biden's terrible positions is that he opposed school busing. So the busing of black children into schools um, back in the time of the civil rights movement. I mean, he, he claimed to be part of the civil rights movement. But then when he was forced to um, expand on that, it turned out that just that he was he worked at a swimming pool, uh, which was like a, a swimming pool that black people went to. And he claimed that that was a civil rights movement. He well, by the sounds of it, the part that he played in it was against it and not. Yeah, absolutely. He was in it because he, he's like, he's absolutely. He was in it, but on the a, wrong side. There was a Jacobin article, which I thought had used a really good phrase. That he's like a fetishist for bipartisan you know, action like he he like reached across the aisle to some horrific right wing Republican on to oppose school busing. He supported NAFTA, which is the you know devastated um, jobs in the U.S., but also in terms of massive exploitation in in Mexico. Big supporter of the Iraq War, big supporter of the Patriot Act, tax on civil liberties. Like the guy's really awful. Um, and Kamala Harris is the same cut from the same cloth in reality. Like her record as a prosecutor is of someone who was very right wing. She's not some progressive prosecutor um, whatsoever. She's argued for keeping nonviolent defenders in jail as a source of cheap cheap labor. There's like a whole bunch of articles which go into this stuff. Like these people are not progressive at all. Um, just something that I found pretty interesting from it all is like like you're mentioning how so much of the debate and stuff is going on on Twitter about it. And I genuinely think that this is something that worldwide we've inherited from Donald Trump and how he has played his campaign. Like, because straight away, the first place that Joe Biden and Camilla Harris came out to kind of, you know, acknowledge their um, presidency and vice presidency was on Twitter. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like the public stage where everybody goes to look for updates from politicians now. And there's no way that that wasn't influenced by Donald Trump. Like, I also just on um, what Trump has been up to, Sky News were very hefty reporting on the fact that he was out golfing while uh, you know his campaigners were out there trying to battle in courts against things, and they made they kind of had a statement that was released from him, and the statement made so much sense and was really comprehensive that I was like, "There's no fucking way that came from that man's mouth, or he wrote that down, or you know what I mean." So obviously, when times are good, he's a bit more of a loose cannon, and it seems like when his ego has been bruised he'll actually listen to his media campaign managers and actually follow direction if you get me yeah like I just, just because you mentioned him 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 golfing i feel we can't um not mention the the four seasons yeah. garden center thing um because i think that that may well be like the funniest thing to have ever <laughs> happened and um, so in case anyone is anyone isn't aware um trump just like tweeted out saying that there would be a big press conference in um in the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia. Um, then this hotel then released a statement saying, like, we know nothing about this. Um, and they, the Trump campaign set up a, a press conference in the car park of something called the Four Seasons Landscaping Center, which is just like a random garden center on the outskirts of Philadelphia. And it's like across the road from a crematorium <laughs> and beside a sex shop as well. Yeah. And there's this, this surreal scene of like Rudy Giuliani giving a press conference there. It's like it is it's like it's like something out of the thick of it. Like it was absolutely bizarre, but so, so funny. It's hilarious on many levels because it's just like, how did it yeah. end up like? You know what I mean? So like the speculation is that, you know, some staffer or whatever Googled Four Seasons Philadelphia and just rang the first number. OK, but then how did the person on the other end of the line be like, no, we don't do press conferences. We're actually a landscaping business. But, you know, they obviously made a mistake and then they just like dug in in an extreme uh, way. And one of 
the interesting things I thought in the election was obviously at the same time, there's a whole bunch of what we in Ireland would call um, referendums on different kind of policy uh, measures. Um, did anyone give us a kind of brief overview of kind of how some of those votes went in different states? Yeah, so like in in Florida, a, a, there was a... Um... A, a on the ballot was a move to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour and that like passed easily mm-hmm. um even though uh the Trump ended up winning that state quite easily um and there there, there are numerous other examples of like a lot of progress there's a bunch of ca- cannabis decriminalization yeah. or legalization type ones which i think all passed um like i do think i think i think it's interesting to look at those referendums because they cut across the main democratic establishment line as to why they didn't do better mm. is because the um trump anti-socialist rhetoric was very effective um and i mean I, I suspect there's a point there in terms of the latino community in florida in particular where mm. y- you do have an historic kind of cuban emigre community etc cetera, etc cetera, which might be more open to those kind of lines of argument um but it seems to me it's kind of a useful argument for the democratic establishment to latch on to because it says oh actually if we'd gone for bernie if we'd gone further left wing we definitely would have would have lost um whereas all the indications i mean the other thing that that struck me was the the fox news exit poll um there's a great tweet with like all these like like the majority of people on fox news exit poll support quite radical quite left-wing policies. I think 72% of voters said they wanted, quote, government-run healthcare plan, which isn't even, is not even, you know, it's posed in a way which makes it, oh, why would the government run my healthcare? As opposed to like Medicare for all, which is the way. So it's quite interesting. It does demonstrate again that the people or the majority of the people are to the left of the Democrats or the establishment Democrats rather than to the right. Do you guys think though, the fact that, you know, campaigning outside of the Democratic Party was a big part of success in the kind of like for the democrats do you think it's proof that a third party would have a chance to succeed in any way it's yeah i think that's a difficult one to answer like i think in the medium term that obviously has to be the strategy like i don't i don't see um the democratic party being like the vehicle to achieve socialism in america that that just sounds a bit ridiculous but as to whether or not uh, there's enough there now to to be for another group to to kind of pursue a fully separate ballot line, um, like the DSA, for example, Democratic Socialists of America. Um, I think it's kind of difficult to tell because um, there there is like like aside from just the amount of support for for other organizations, or sorry, like aside from the fact that it's a two party system, right? That it's it's very difficult to convince people to vote for something outside that two party system. There's also like a lot of legal difficulties in lots of states for 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 getting your the the your party on the ballot. Um, so it is kind of difficult. Like I think what a lot of people in the DSA the strategy they favor is um basically using the Democrats for the time being to get enough socialists elected, and at some point break with the democratic party when there's enough prominence to do that um whether or not that's going to happen this cycle or even the next cycle is another question but i think in the medium term it probably has to yeah i think i think one of the interesting things there is the danger like i think there's a logic in the kind of dirty break strategy which is that you use democratic ballot line where you have to or not but like where you have to you do there's not a principle against using democratic party line but your strategy is not 
for the like the realignment of the Democratic Party towards the left, that you know you can't do that, and it's about preparing to build a, an actual you know left wing third workers party in in the US. And the danger with it is that like it just is into the never never like is the way we do this now, and that becomes a reason that we do it the next time and the next time and the next time. Um, so something that I know like the Reform and Revolution Caucus in the US that we had on a couple of weeks ago or last week. Um, that they're stressing is like, yes, for the dirty break, but then you have to actually do things which actually get you towards the process of that that dirty break. I mean, Howie Hawkins, who was quite a good candidate in terms of the program he had for the Green Party, quite a left-wing program for a Green Party candidate. He, he, he did poorly in this election, just inevitably, when it's so polarized. I mean, he got 0.2%, which I think is the lowest for like a left third-party candidate in quite a while. Um, what, what about, I mean, sorry, one, one other thing that I struck me as very positive is um, apparently the DSA, Democratic Socialist of America, they've increased their membership by 10,000 in the last month, and they've got to drive towards 100,000 by the end of the year, which they might come close to, um, even if they don't reach it. It's that That is real substance. So what, what people think will happen in, I mean, how's the Biden presidency going to work out? What are the opportunities that exist for the left, as well as, like, presumably Trumpism? isn't going away what's the right going to be up to um so personally i think kind of the same that i i did back when we thought maybe hillary clinton might be the president it's that like under the democratic system you're gonna see not that much change from when people who are admittedly mm-hmm. right-wing were in power so i think that there there'll be an element of disappointment um in the democratic party for a lot of people and my hope would be that these people would turn to groups like the dsa or to you know socialists who are actually fighting kind of to go that step further than um even the kind of left wing of the democratic party like sanders and stuff like that so i I don't know, I would be um, I would be hopeful that that would be the case anyway and that I, I suppose the media kind of aren't going to highlight that in the same way. So I think it's the job of the left to kind of show have your living conditions really improved that much since it wasn't Trump and, you know, how well have things gone? So I think it'd be up to us as the left to kind of keep an eye on how things do change under Biden and to kind of comment on that. Yeah, like I think I probably more or less agree. Like I'd add that... Um the the possibility of Biden doing anything remotely progressive or left wing, which was not never very high in the in, in the first place, um, it, that's made even less likely by the likelihood mm-hmm. the Republicans will retain the Senate. Um, now obviously it, it's going to come down to the two runoffs in Georgia in January, and you could see a world in which the Democrats win both of those. Um, but for now it does seem likely that the Republicans, um, will get the Senate. Um. But yeah, even if you just like look at the kind of the names that are being floated for the cabinet, they're all like very much on the right of of, of the Democratic Party. Um, like probably the the most like per, the, the the most left wing person there who isn't remotely left wing at all would be someone like Pete Buttigieg, for example. Like that's <laughs> you know the, you're in trouble. That's then. the level we're talking about. <laughs> like yeah, um, so yeah, it 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 just does seem very uh, unlikely. Um, and now I know like um. So Bernie Sanders has this whole thing about like 100 days of like holding Biden mm-hmm. accountable at the start of his presidency. Um, there was an interview with AFC in the New York Times today um, where basically she like spoke very strongly um, about if, if, if Biden did go the kind of obviously conservative um, path. Um, she was basically like, we are going to lose next time if you do this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
all the people who came out to vote um, will just think the entire system is useless, which seemed to suggest like she she would try to offer some resistance in in in, in that eventuality. Um, but yeah, like I I I, I don't see anything left wing happening really. I mean, the, you, you pro- probably like you'll see um, symbolic, sim- a lot of symbolic stuff like the US rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, that kind of thing. But um, not nothing, nothing much in terms of substance, I would say. I mean, w- one thing I saw, like, there's this great, um, well, really awful placard um, from some liberals at a protest, which is like, if Clinton had won, we'd all be having brunch now. Right. And there's this idea amongst like a section of liberals that like, oh, like we just want to go back to having brunch. You know, we just want to go back to the way things were where we don't have to worry about politics. And like, that's what a Biden presidency kind of represents. They're going to try and like turn the clock back to the way things were like back to 2015. But like, there is no going back. Like the the center of politics around the world is collapsing. Um, And, you know, you can't ultimately defeat Trumpism and like I, I'm very scared that like Trumpism do you know these people are now organized in a significant way and yes I mean some of the more ridiculous stuff will be exposed the QAnon stuff do you know what I mean it's just like okay those people like surely some of them will have a bit of a crisis of faith in it um but like these people are now substantially organized they've tasted power with a buffoon at their head and the real danger is that they get organized um with like a serious more ideological kind of leader for the next time and they could maintain the republican party it's not like in four years time you can have another far right but like smarter more capable leader and you won't defeat that with like clintonism with bidenism with that kind of you need like radical socialist ideas to actually appeal to people who are otherwise open because the reality is that people's lives aren't getting any better that's the point over like decades and decades people's lives are getting harder not easier and they know that there's a that there's a problem So I don't know if you guys remember when Obama took over back in, what would it be now, 2010 or something? Whatever whatever year Obama got his first president. Hey, thank you. So obviously, yeah, because it goes in four years. So in 2008, when Obama took over, there was this kind of excuse of like, oh, you know, the recession has just started. So what can you really expect him to accomplish? And there was a statement put out on Twitter where we get all our political updates now, uh, from Obama yesterday, which was already starting that kind of rhetoric where it was like, oh, you know, it's unprecedented for someone to take over during a bad economic crisis and the COVID pandemic, which obviously would get in the way of anyone's presidential, you know, plans uh, in America. But it's just, I can see already the excuses coming out for when Biden doesn't accomplish anything and doesn't make any changes. You know, the groundwork is being set now, like, yeah, I do. I do think the Obama comparison is is very relevant in the sense that um, all the opposition that was there to to Bush kind of like disappeared as soon as Obama became president, even though um, he was still doing a lot of the same things. I do think the one difference now is like the left in the US is far more relevant and far more energized than it was back in 08, like barely even existed in most people's imagination. Um, but yeah, like I think one thing that kind of points to the kind of people that will be in the Biden administration is you you saw all of them over the last few days, like correctly um, pointing out that, um, you know, Trump's protests about counting mail ballots and him losing his lead were ridiculous. Um, however, when this was exactly what was happening um, in the, the Bolivian election last year, 
um, when Evo Morales was winning thanks to late mail vote mail votes kind of boosting his tally. Yet they called this um, fraud in the same way Trump was calling that election fraud. And ultimately, it was that that allowed the coup to happen there. Um, so yeah, it 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 just um, the it's it's always worth keeping in mind the the hypocrisies of of these of a lot of these people when they're talking about countries that that aren't America. Yeah, and in, in terms of Bolivia, I mean, I think um, like they could have got away with it as well, you know, because it's kind of it's presented in a way that like, oh, well, it all worked out in the end, didn't it? Because there was an election and they won and that's just fine. But they didn't want there to be an election. I mean, the, the kind of again, the hard right had power um, like they did things that were so unpopular that they undermined their own base. Then the right wing vote for the elections was uh, split and then they were forced because of movements from below. I mean, you know, I think like Mass and Morales made loads of mistakes, but one thing that they did right in the last year is like they mobilized people, they mobilized people onto the streets, people got organized and people demanded that like, no, we're going to have, we're going to have another vote. We're going to have the right uh, to vote for who we want, except they couldn't vote for Morales. Um, and then um, they, they voted for the Mass uh, candidate, which is a big, big um, victory. But like, it didn't all just like work out. It worked out because people struggled and fought for it. But it, the same people, the same like New York Times columnists, or same Guardian columnists or whatever, who are like sneering and laughing at Trump were the ones who were sneering and laughing at those of us, like people like Jeremy Corbyn, who were opposed to the coup against Morales in the first place. Didn't they have like a kind of an admission in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post that they accepted that there was no vote rigging for? Yeah, like it was basically just like the 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 evidence for the coup, or not for the vote rigging, was like found to be completely not at all there a few months later. Um, to the extent that, yeah, as you said, like even the Washington Post and the New York Times had to admit, like, okay, there wasn't actually any vote rigging at all. Um, which was always like obvious to 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 anyone who has ever um, observed the US getting involved in Latin American politics at all before. But um, it, it just kind of shows like how, how badly they, they botched it, really. Like, um, I don't know, I kind of feel like if this were the 1980s, um, they would have pulled that off in a much, uh, much more ruthless way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, um, there was no evidence, really, for, for, for vote rigging at all. You can kind of see revolutionary sort of uprisings throughout um, South America in general. And we saw in in Chile that they voted to rewrite their constitution with 78% of people um, voting yes to rewriting it. And there was kind of two questions they were asked. The first was, do you want to rewrite the constitution? Of which obviously 78% said yes. And then the second one was, what kind of body would you like to write it? So the two options they were given was one that was 100% elected by popular vote or one that was 50% of their already established Congress. I assume the other 50% would be popular vote then. And people decided to go um, with the body to draw it up that was 100% elected by the popular vote. And that was, I think, 79%. So it's like a really clear majority of people who were like, there is inequality in this country and it needs to be resolved. Because I believe like in terms of wealth Chile has been on the rise but it's just that it's not fairly distributed is what I understand of the situation anyway and you've had huge protests which are kind of have a kind of a non-party kind of 
semi-spontaneous kind of character in the last couple of years in, in Chile, which have forced the holding of this referendum. And which is a star because the I mean the, the constitution that they're getting rid of is the Pinochet era constitution. So this like, you know, horrifically right wing uh, regime. That's where the constitution uh, comes from. Um, and then, like you say, the constituent assembly. You know, it's a quite a progressive way of dealing with it. Um, which is also, by the way, just incidentally far better than like our like quote unquote citizens assembly whereby we randomly select people by a lottery like okay like it has certain benefits but it's a far more democratic process yeah, to elect people like yeah i know but it's part of like depoliticizing the whole thing like and like technocratizing the whole thing um i feel like it's trying to say that in order for things to actually be a fair representation it needs to be a random selection of the population instead of it actually being the popular vote in ireland which is weird um yeah, I think like what was it like a, a month of protests pretty much every day that pushed the vote, the referendum in Chile. So I suppose it's just it's inspiring for the rest of us to see that you can push that through protest and make things big changes like that happen. Yeah, Michael, um, what do you think is going to happen? Obviously, we had the so-called pink tide um, previously of like you know, somewhat left-wing um, governments. And they, I mean, they weren't all the same. They were quite different if you compare Venezuela, Bolivia, Chile, mm-hmm. um, Brazil. They're different kind of compositions or whatever and did different things. Um, but it, it, like a few years ago, that began to be turned back. You had a whole number of kind of right-wing governments uh, coming into to power. Um, like in particular, I mean, epitomized by Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. And there's talk that this is kind of a new pink tide emerging or a re-emergence of the pink tide do you think that's that is what's happening and um how do you think it will go yeah i mean i'd say that's certainly the direction of travel at the moment um i i I'd, it's still probably too early to 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 say for definite that this is you know a, a, a like a definitive shift um but i i think we can be relatively optimistic about it at least um so obviously we've seen what's happened in bolivia and chile um, but even like um, in in Ecuador, so uh, Correa, who was the president, who was elected, who was elected in the Pink Tide, I think in two thousand and seven. I might be wrong there, right, around that kind of time, anyway. Um, he is in exile at the moment, having having effectively mm-hmm. been been ditched by by the by by some, someone from his own party, um, and he's very much like backing a a new candidate to 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 run in the election in the upcoming year from from exile and. My understanding, anyway, is that they're they're in a good position to win because, like a lot of people, you know, still very much support what Correa did in his in his time in power in Ecuador, um, and even 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 in Brazil, obviously, Bolsonaro is still in charge, but like the likelihood mm-hmm. um, is that Lula uh, Lula da Silva is probably going to to run in the next presidential election, and had he been allowed to run in the previous one, he would have beaten Bolsonaro. And now, like I don't like you know, like. He was he was previously president of Brazil and like you know did some good kind of like relatively good policies that were more social democratic than socialist, um, but was also you know not great in a lot of ways, um, but was still considered part of that pink tide. And again, like I I just think the the general direction of travel is is encouraging there. Um, at the at a moment when you know you look at the world and there you want to find some encouragement for for left wing movements yeah i'm re- reading at the moment a very 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 long article in catalyst um, which people should get it's like the kind of theoretical journal which accompanies jacobin um this long article about about the latest in latin america from a guy called rene 
Rojas, um, which is really in detail. Um, in this one, he's focusing on um, Brazil, Chile, and Mexico. And he, he kind of refers to the model that they pursued, like with the pink tie, to say with Lula, as like a version of progressive neoliberalism. Um, and he's, he's extending on an article he wrote a couple of years ago that was really good. But basically, the, the essential point he's making with a whole lot of like a detail and examples is, you know, for the likes of Brazil, um, but in general, you had like an improvement in redistribution. Um, so like in particular, you had the Bolsa famil- Familiara, which is basically like a social welfare payment in Brazil, um, which was a big thing for the poorer sections of the population. Um, and so as long as like revenue was coming into the state, they were distributing in a fairer manner than previously. And it had, you know, a pretty small, but it did have an impact in terms of the levels of inequality. Um, but they didn't touch really any of them. Like the kind of the model in which the economy was organized. So both one, the kind of um, extraction-based economy of fossil fuels, um, destruction of natural resources, mining, et cetera, et cetera. They all largely continue with that. But also, most importantly, the kind of model of, okay, production for profit, private ownership of wealth. And it left, it, it meant like power was left in the hands of the capitalist class on the one hand, and on the other hand, then ordinary people and like particular sections of the working class were left disappointed um which then meant that they were, were less likely to mobilize or whatever in defense so i mean one hopes i wouldn't be very confident but one hopes some of those lessons are 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 learned yeah and like i suppose i think it, yeah that, that's interesting about the the um people not mobilizing afterwards because i guess the lesson of Bolivia really is, is that the kind of like having and maintaining that kind of movement, like out outside just the field of electoralism is, is so important. And um, not only in itself, but also for actually, you know, achieving elect you, you can't really achieve electoral victories without that. And you certainly can't protect gains that, that are made um, from it with, with, without that. Um, which I think is probably something that, like, like obviously, very different kind of situation to, to to Ireland or Europe or even the US, um, but I think that's a it's a fairly universal lesson that that the left needs to needs to keep in mind um, when involving itself in electoral struggle as well. One of the things that um, brought a smile to my face during the the week, alongside Trump Trump's defeat, was um, Morales. It was really good. Morales he posted a um, a thing on Twitter supporting jeremy corbyn in the context of this you know horrific situation whereby corbyn has been suspended from the labor party kind of because of his comments about how big an issue anti-semitism in the labor party is and his response to the echrc um report and it's just really like nice and heartwarming indication of solidarity from like morales has enough problems of his own but he also recognized that corbyn is someone who in fairness like corbyn came under a lot of flack for speaking out against the coup came on a huge flack from the, the right-wing british media um whenever the coup was happening in uh, bolivia and morales kind of repays it when he sees his his comrade in uh under completely unjust attack it goes to show you though no matter how wrapped up you are in your own political advances you should always be reaching out in solidarity to other socialist movements across the board and keeping an eye on what is going on worldwide because we know that socialism won't happen in one country so to see it in other countries is going to inspire your own population as well I think. Um, could you Michael could you sum up what happened in the 
in the, I mean, there's the, like years of supposed anti-Semitism to, to sum up, just to give people a picture of how have we come to a situation where Corbyn was this enormously popular leader and uh, now he's suspended from the Labour Party. Yeah, so I suppose um, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago now, it was like the Thursday before last, I think, it was when the um, the EHRC report into uh, anti-Semitism in Labour came out. Um, and what happened was Corbyn said he accepted um, some of its findings. Um, but that also that anti-Semitism was exaggerated and weaponized. Now, the report only found two instances of um, a kind of like a level of anti-Semitism that was that was unlawful. And um, one of those being with uh, Ken Livingston and then the other being just like some random councillor who was of no significance really whatsoever. Um, and Starmer suspe- suspended him for saying that um, it was in any way exaggerated and weaponized. Um, and of course, like the left of the party is protest against this a lot, but yet there's there's been no uh, there's there, there there's been no 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 budging at all. But the the point is like what 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 Corbyn said was that it was exaggerated. Um, it, in before the election last year, there there was a poll which 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 suggested that people typically believe that like something like thirty three percent of 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 Labour members had complaints of anti Semitism against them, um, when the real number was was only one percent. Um, you had people going on the radio saying that if Corbyn won, he was going to like open Auschwitz again. Um, so it, it is just like what he said was just true, right? Um, mm-hmm. and the 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 report and the the, the 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 there were of course I think issues with with how Labour did handle anti anti Semitism, but what what the report kind of points to and what the the leaks that came out um earlier in this year that pre- pre- present ev- evidence of like staffers um when the part like when the party was the the kind of administration of the party was was controlled by the right before Corbyn could get his uh before Jenny Formby took over um mm-hmm. that staffers were basically deliberately blocking up the 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 process in in order to make him look bad um and and that the the, the process was more dysfunctional at that time point in time and got more functional um afterwards um so it 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 does just like it's um yeah it 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 does just feel like a bit of a stitch up it 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 does seem like essentially like anti-semitism and jewish people are being weaponized in 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 a factional war um is what appears to be going on here yeah there's a great um youtube video by a guy called david Graeber, mm-hmm. I want to say is the correct pronunciation. And he comes from a left-wing Zionist background. And he basically just talks about how, you know, you're considered to be a self-hating Jew, as he said. Um, you know, if you're not supporting figures like Bibi Netanyahu, who's the guy Netanyahu, yeah, the um Prime Minister of Israel, and talking about how they've tried to like wipe figures like Karl Marx and Jesus, you know, those kind of um, traditions of Judaism away. Um, and he just basically kind of he, he's actually laughing when he describes this bit, and he's like, Boris Johnson's book is is so anti-Semitic. It's like people are literally trying to ignore it. Boris Johnson describes um, how Jewish oligarchs control the media in his book that he wrote with his name all over it, mm-hmm. right? And then um, if you're to compare, so the mention of anti-Semitism from the Labour Party in the height of all of this in 2018, I believe, um, it was over 6,000 articles in the British media mentioned the anti-Semitism coming from the Labour Party, whereas there was not one mention 
of anything from the Tory side of things. It's just so unfair the way that things are represented in the media. Like, yeah, and like, it's like, I, like I do, I do think we 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 probably should acknowledge, like, you know, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is something that exists, but it exists because Britain is a deeply racist society. Like, as opposed to there being something uniquely left-wing or 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 uniquely socialist um about about, about that anti-semitism um yeah and, and, and like i i think what what corbyn said was we've as we said what corbyn said was true is um you know people thought it was a ma- ma- major issue when it was a minority um i think there's another question like whether it was do i mean do, do, do either of you think it was a strategically wise thing to say or, or should he have just been 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 saying it um anyway because it was true i mean obviously strategically it hasn't worked out for him very well to come forward and say it but i think in terms of his own genuine supporters and the people who've watched him being attacked for being anti-semitic and knowing that it isn't true this whole time i think it is important for him to come out and and address these things head on rather than to just sit in the background and kind of allow his name to be smeared basically one of the striking things of like the anti-Semitism allegations against the Corbyn leadership is that like, if if you go back and look at the kind of attacks by the media on Corbyn, they, they kind of scrambled around to find what would work, you know? So like at the start, there was like, you know, a fair number of attacks about Corbyn's relationship with Jerry Adams or like he invited Jerry Adams to speak at a meeting. And like they attacked him on a whole range of fronts. And then they discovered that like attacks, really two things worked. Um, the allegation of anti-Semitism uh, and the question of the, the EU and saying he was soft in the referendum, he didn't campaign properly for Remain, etc. And then they just like hammered home and hammered at that again and again and again and again. Um, and like he's just extremely opportunistic from the point of view of the of the right. And Starmer, you know, it's like it's like Starmer was this big champion of the people's vote thing, um, which was just an attack, an attempt to undermine Corbyn. That's all it was. And now he's in power. He's all about like getting Brexit done kind of thing, get it over and, and done with. Um, but it, like a big problem with the whole thing is that like and, and is like if you give these people an inch, I mean, like the right wing media and the right wing of the Labour Party, they just go and attack again and again and again and again. And like. The response to Corbyn's suspension by most of the left-wing Labour Party is not very strong. Like John McDonnell was very weak. Um, the unions, the left-wing union leaders were very weak, all calling for party unity. In a context in which like party unity is a joke, like the right wing doesn't care. The right wing is trying to drive out the left wing of the party. That's very clearly. They need to get rid of a whole bunch of the half a million members, the majority of whom joined since Corbyn became leader. Starmer needs to get rid of them in order to be able to, like, return it to its old Blairized day. And, like, you have a kind of debate within Labour or within the left in Britain, you know, do, should people stay and fight in the Labour Party or should they leave now and organise something else? And for me, like, from a distance, it seems to be the key thing. I don't care, like, so much whether you think the best strategy now is to stay or to leave. The key thing is to fight, like, and the fighting isn't happening. It's not being organized. I think there was, there was one quite good rally online a week ago or so, but by and large, everything is soft and weak when like, like he could, Corbyn could be expelled from the Labour Party. Like he might not be allowed back in, like, because there isn't enough of a response to force Starmer to do it. And it's, it's such a crime to allow him 
to get away with it um, and not to have kind of learned the lessons of like take the insults that like Storm or the right wing of the Labour Party are, are throwing at you. Yeah, I guess if only Corbyn had been as ruthless as that back mm-hmm. when he was in charge. Um, although you, you could probably say that just isn't him in terms of like, he's clearly a very, very nice and pleasant man, but may, maybe we need, needed more of a, more of like a Lenin, someone with a ruthless mm-hmm. streak to, to... So Lenin was also a nice and pleasant man. You can be both a nice and pleasant <laughs> man and be ruthless. <laughs> but like, like mandatory reselection. Like I know what you mean, right? Yeah. And I think, but like... Mandatory reselection is actually, that's a nice and pleasant thing. The idea that, oh, well, all our MPs should, of course, be, like, reselected by our par- by our branches each time if they're going to stand for re-election. Um, and, like, unfortunately, he just, like, didn't follow through in those things. But also, like, I, I struck John Landsman, who is, like, the leader, actually the owner of Momentum inside the, the Labour Party, which is, like, a limited company, the way he set it up. He was, like, a key backer of, of Corbyn. And he hasn't come out to condemn the attacks on Corbyn. And I saw he had a tweet, like, yesterday attacking the left for not being, like, sufficiently... We're trying to use the American elections to say, oh, we should, everyone should unite behind, like, these people. And then trying to say that those who campaigned for, like, Nader... Um, back in 2000, 2004, were responsible for George Bush coming to power. So, like, with friends like these, you know, unfortunately, you know, no wonder yeah. the mess you get yourself in. Just back on my comparison of how, like, these Labour anti-Semitic attacks are being absolutely blown up by the media, and yet no one mentions the Tories. Um, we kind of find, you know, similar enough situations in our own country. We have the media absolutely hounding Corbyn, and yet in our own little island, uh, we see Leo Radker getting away with absolute murder, and he's just being left alone. He's just getting off the hook, like. Yep. Um, if you want, people, people, should, we should put the link in. I, I wrote an article for the Village magazine, which. Amongst other things, sets out the facts very quickly. Very good article now. Five out of five. Recommend. Must read. Um, But amongst other things, I I set out the facts, which I I think I explained there. Like, they're really simple. They're not complicated. You know, often when political scandals happen, they can be very, very complicated. Do you know? And people are just like, oh, I know there was something and then something. And, and, And like the media and the establishment take advantage of that, of being like, oh, this is very confusing. It's like an inside baseball kind of story. Don't be worried about it. But here it's like, it's so, so simple. What happened was that the government, this is back in 2019 when Varadkar was Taoiseach, the government was negotiating a contract um, with GPs at the time. They were negotiating with the Irish Medical Organization, which is the kind of most established kind of, which is two, but all right, well, there were, were two then. It was the, like the established kind of doctor's union stroke association because they're not really workers they're more private contractors in reality um and uh, they were negotiating that contract um uh, there was a rival association of doctors called the national association of gps at the top of which was this guy Matthew O'Toole, who was Varadkar's friend Varadkar says now no he wasn't very he wasn't really my friend more of an acquaintance he was picking it up and he was also his political supporter uh, again Varadkar says oh no he wasn't really my supporter but like there's a picture of him in a big Leo t-shirt he supported his Fine Gael candidate anyway this guy's the top of that he um, looks for access while the negotiations are concluding but haven't concluded um, he seeks to get a copy of this um, document um he tries to get it from Simon Harris, but he doesn't get it. Then he goes to Varadkar by the looks of it. Varadkar asks him for his home address and posts him personally a copy of this document, which is 
a confidential document. Vryker admitted in the doll, it's a confidential document. Um, and like, you know, it is very arguably corruption under the Corruption Offences Act. Like they made a big deal of trying to say, oh, well, Vryker didn't personally benefit. He didn't get any money for it. But for something to be corrupt, you don't have to personally benefit. Just someone has to get an advantage. And it's just like, it couldn't be clearer, in my opinion, that this guy, Matthew O'Toole, got a big advantage. He's able to present himself as the guy who got access to uh, the document, the guy who Leo pulled strings for. He, like, assures his advancement further or, like, staying as president of the NGP, although it went defunct a few weeks uh, later because of financial irregularities. And it's also an advantage to the NGP. I mean, they talk about using it to undermine the, the IMO. I totally agree with you, Paul. Like generally when there's like a political scandal, uh, I would have to like hear about it and then also read a couple of articles about it before I could like divulge the full information to my friend and family circle. But with this one, you know, I heard a description of it once and I was like, well, that's so easy to understand. You know what I mean? I, I must pass on this information immediately. Like, and just to kind of I suppose, say how common a knowledge it would be, how wrong this is. Like any corporation that you're in, so like my job in in a private corporation, part of what we have to do for like our legal training, which most companies I I would assume would make you do, is you have to do like a, a training course on competition laws and how you can't do exactly what Leo Radker fucking did. So even as like your average worker in an office you would have this kind of information that that's not acceptable as something that you can do you know so straight away when people hear that it's already being drilled into their mentality of like actually that's a bit corrupt like you can't you can't do that so even as a normal person to know you're not supposed to do that on behalf of your company to be the fucking shock and to do it yeah, like I, th- I think for like for like Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael um, in general they're basically they basically play politics on easy mode in the sense that <laughs> the, the the way they are tr- treated for doing things compared to the way you know everyone else is treated, I mm-hmm. mean, like obviously this kind of thing has been said. But if 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 that had been you, Paul, doing something like that, or or Richard Boyd Barrett, or someone from Sinn Fein, like the the extent to which the media murder, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, murder. they would be all, all absolutely all over it. Um, and all you really had was that like that Irish Times article from earlier in the week, which was like basically a wrist slap of, of, of Leo and nothing more, um, you know, acknowledging that what, like what he did, did was wrong, but saying like, Oh, he'll, 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 he'll survive. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just kind of maddening. Like, you know, you don't really expect um, much more, but like, it's still, it's, it's, it still is maddening to watch. And uh, yeah, it's, um, I feel like most people, when they're kind of thinking about the the, the differences between F- Fine Gael and, and Fianna Fáil, some people would probably think, well, at least Fine Gael aren't as like blatantly corrupt as Fianna Fáil are. But like, I feel like that that this kind of thing like has to shatter that illusion because obviously this is an instance of, of Leo being caught. But like, you do have to think this kind of thing is going on all the time with, with lots of different things. Um, I saw just on Twitter earlier that apparently Village Magazine are releasing more uh, evidence tomorrow um so presumably by the time you're listening to this podcast that evidence will be out um so we'll be interested to see what that is yeah i mean i hope it's um i hope it's explosive because like at the moment like you're saying it looks like he's gotten away with it um and i have to say i'm 
Like, I, I was surprised by that. <laughs> Maybe that's like a bit naive. Like, I, I just thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was going to yeah. be a big deal. I thought it's it just too blatant. I mean, the guy like, he, like the guy is definitely in breach of the code of conduct for TDs. He is definitely in breach in the code of conduct for office holders. And the village makes a strong case that he's breaking the law. And it's very clear, by the way, that Ragger is not going to sue them, despite like he was like he was all about it's grossly defamatory. He was at the statement, which is like it's all true. It's grossly defamatory, <laughs> um, but he's he's not going to sue them um, because like he knows he doesn't really have a le- or it seems he knows he doesn't really have a leg um, to to stand on. Um, but like at the moment, before this evidence, it looks like they'll be damaged, but get away with it. And like his defense, it's funny, like. His defense is basically like, oh, I did it for the right reason, so it's okay. I did. It. I didn't do it for personal gain. I did it because I wanted to get these people on board. Even though there's evidence to say like they weren't using this information to get them on board, they had the NAGP, they were planning to use it for the opposite. Um, and and then the other being, he tries to create. They try to create confusion to try and complicate the story and to be like, oh, all the details of this were out, even though like like I now have a copy of the um, document that was given to Machu O'Toole. Uh, by Varadkar and it's like it it is different it's not the same contract that was published then over a month later there's a whole bunch of differences within it but they try and create confusion around um that but I but I do think like like Michael was saying like I think like obviously your man should go no question about it we'll vote for the motion of no confidence in in Varadkar but I think it's useful in the sense of like exposing the reality of like like there's been a number of things Golfgate this Michael Darcy, Brian Hayes going to lot demonstrating how politics still works in this country, you know? Absolutely. That's what it says to me. Just like Golfgate and all those other examples, the rules don't apply to you when you're mm-hmm. rich and powerful. You can get away with whatever you want to. You know what I mean? Like even as blatant as this, it still just has no repercussions, which to me is madness. Um, you mentioned there that there's going to be a vote of no confidence in Leo. I believe that's brought forward by mm-hmm. Sinn Féin. Uh, do you guys think that anybody is going to, you know, break a few government ranks and, and, and vote for him out of, uh, out of character? Any gossip going on there in the doll? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess Michael can't answer about gossip in the doll. Um, neither can I really, though. I'm not in those circles. Um, I don't think so. Um, I think for all the bluster from... I mean, well, it's not even that much bluster. The only bluster is from, like, the discontented backbenches of um, Fianna Fáil. And nobody in the Greens has said anything about it of substance. The only thing they were like, oh, we need a full statement. And then, like, they got their full statement, even though, like, you know, he made a full statement where he admitted doing all these things wrong. Like, and then they were like, oh, they had a statement out. Oh, well, we thank him for his clarification. And basically it won't happen again. And then you just have a combination of kind of some kind of blowhards in Fianna Fáil, like your man, Mark McSharry, who's like thumping the table about it. And then Jim O'Callaghan, who's like supposedly the more sophisticated opposition inside Fianna Fáil. But even him, he's like, his line is clearly Omihal Martin should have had a harder line on Vracker, but he also says Vracker shouldn't have resigned over it. So I don't think he's going to vote for it. Yeah. Like one thing I wonder is like, has part of the reason there's been like less of a fuss being kicked up about this been to do with like the timing of when all this was happening in the sense that like i feel like even in ireland the the politics news most people were paying attention to this mm-hmm. week was the us presidential election right the 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 questions to leo and the doll um were on the day of the the, the election for example um so i do just kind of wonder if there is something 
you know interesting or significant in 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 the village story tomorrow um whether or not that will mean people will be just paying attention to this more and that mm-hmm. for that reason you will see more pressure um on the parties other than other other than Finnegale to to try and demand something more whereas because they're just like it, it it just seems to me like not that many people were paying attention to what was going on in the store last week okay um and that may change this week now maybe i'm completely wrong about that that's just the, the impression i got anyway maybe that's why the village decided to hold off a bit of evidence until now knowing that people were distracted by the u.s presidential election like because surely if, if they had evidence they would have it all compiled from the beginning I mean, even if it's a picture of Leo Varadkar hacking someone's head off. <laughs> Simon Harris will be on the radio tomorrow being like, well, he did it in the best interest and we all need to move on from this now and don't be going for divisive politics. And like, because we need Twitter to... would drop a video like Richard Bruton making banana bread or something <laughs> <Exactly>. like <laughs> All right, on that note, I think we can leave it there for this episode and we can continue... For those of you insiders, we can continue discussing some of these things on the bonus B-side on Patreon. Uh, just a reminder, again, for people who are interested in supporting the podcast, that there is a Patreon community set up. It has bonus content. It has sneak peeks of upcoming episodes and much, much, much more. Thanks to those who have joined already. And a special shout out to Kai, the first of the party. I've been told we also have some nice Rupture Radio stickers and we'll be posting those out to the first 20 people who sign up to Patreon too. So keep an eye out for that. And to everyone listening, please do continue to tell your friends about the podcast, share it on social media, help them to subscribe so they never miss an episode. And if you can, please do rate and review the podcast to help us reach more people. Have a great great week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. You stick your trousers on and your last bit of makeup Your last coat button falls away Flowing through life another day One shoelace beating the other people in the bus Shouting at one another Can of two more guy moments